With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Liverpool, march on. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football, but Cole is off on a scouting mission for me as there's a lot of midweek action, so Cole gets the week off. And that means it's, wait for it, Wally Pitt time. So, Drew, how have you been, mate? Hope all is well since we last spoke. Well, I've been doing all right. Didn't exactly enjoy the Chelsea loss, but hey, hopefully a win will come later on today against Arsenal, and my spirits will be higher. So, I'll let you know later on this afternoon. Fantastic. Right, before we talk all things Premier League, let's do the social media bits. Otherwise, I'll be talking to the Abyss once more. So, first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join this very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And also, if you like it, leave a review. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. Well, the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. And what is Loserpool? I hear you ask. It's the company behind the game, Last Man Standing, one which is free to enter, and the prize pool once again stands at £1,000. If this has grabbed your interest, be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account. Right then, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Well, we've focused on the bottom of the table these past couple of weeks, so I think it's only fair to go back up to the top. Because, Drew, Liverpool have now made it 39 games unbeaten, and you'd have to say, with the combination of results this weekend, it pretty much seals a first Premier League title for the Reds. Yeah, there's absolutely no way they blow this. If they do, it's going to be the biggest choke in all of sports history, but most likely that's not going to happen. Liverpool absolutely dominated Manchester United in this match. And what I thought was so fitting was the final goal 
you see Mohamed Salah sprinting down the pitch, the poster child for this revolution and this revival at Liverpool, speeding away from everyone. And Daniel James from Manchester United is representing them, a transfer who's been mediocre, as have many since Sir Alex Ferguson has left. And no matter what he does, he can't stop Mohamed Salah in the same way that Manchester United and the entire league can't stop Liverpool from winning the title this year. So, Alison Becker was um, part of that late celebration. How pivotal has he been to Liverpool over the last few weeks? Because at the start of the season, or so shall we say sort of through the season, we were sort of mentioning that, yes, Liverpool were unbeaten. However, that was a sort of, not a caveat, but they were sort of edging games by the odd goal. Now, though, seven clean sheets in a row. So, it's not just, you know, edging games. It's fortress Liverpool at the moment. Well, Alisson has been absolutely fantastic, that's for sure. Since he's come back, you mentioned the clean sheets, but they've been phenomenal defensively, and his inclusion since returning from injury is a big part of that, and it has been helping them. They've been able to dominate games a lot better. The defense knows that they have a solid shot stopper behind them, so he's been absolutely pivotal, and then, of course, you get the bonus, like you saw for that second goal where he... uh, went route one and sent Salah free. So he's been phenomenal at the back. They've been absolutely a ton better, 100% better, 10 times better with Allison at the back. And assuming he stays healthy for the remainder of the year, there's no reason to see them ever surrendering another goal. That's how solid their defense has been. Obviously, that's a bit facetious. But I think if it happened, a lot of people would be like, yeah, I could see that. They're that good. So Allison has been a big addition since returning from injury, and he's going to continue to be a key player for them as he was last year, as he's been all this season when he's been fit, and Liverpool are going to pretty much jog on to the title because no one can stop them. It's funny you mention actually Becker potentially going all the way to the end of the season and not conceding because this is a sort of slightly off-the-cuff conversation that me and a friend had yesterday. And he mentioned the fact that Chelsea hold the Premier League record for least goals conceded, which is 15 in a season. Is that correct? That sounds right, yes. yes. And I, I believe that was when Mourinho was there That's the first right. time. Yes, and Liverpool are currently on 14 goals. So it would take a massive effort for Liverpool to break that record. But, you know, if Becker doesn't concede a goal, then, you know, that record's on as well. But talking of records, I mean, everything is just, you know, they're just ratcheting up more and more as they go. I mean, if we take Man City as the example of points to be scored in a season, so 98 points, 100 points, what can Liverpool do points-wise this season? The maximum they can get is 112. That would take, you know, 37 wins, one draw. Can you see him hitting 112? Will there be a couple of more draws along the way now that sort of the pressure's slightly off a little bit? How do you see that panning out for the Reds? Well, I think there might be a draw involved after they clinch mathematically the title. So be that in April, if they already have the title in hand, and let's say they're still fighting in the Champions League, you could definitely see them let off the gas rotate during the weekend in the Premier League and therefore drop points. So I don't quite think 37 wins in one draw is going to happen. But again, though, I don't think it would be crazy if at the end of the year to see that and go, yeah, I I, I understand that. That's how good they really are. Is it going to happen? No. I think 100 points is definitely the goal right now. But even more so than that, I think a record that they should be looking at besides points is total wins in a season. Manchester City have the record at 32. Liverpool are already two-thirds of the way there. I think they can definitely get 10 more, 11 more wins 
throughout the season. So I think if they're looking for a record, it should be single season wins or uh, wins in a single season. That should be the one they're looking for. Could this be the ultimate evolution of a Premier League team? You take Arsenal as the Invincibles, what, 15, 16 years ago now. Chelsea, we just spoke about them, you know, 95 points, a great defensive record that season. You get Man City, 98 points, 100 points. You know, you, you always ask the question, how can a team be even better? Short of someone going 38-0 and in a season, could this be the maximum quality a team can be in one defined season? I would have to say yes. If they get over 100 points, because how many teams have gotten to 100 in history? At least in England, only one, Manchester City. So for them to eclipse that would be one of the best records ever set. And would it ever be broken? That would be hard to, you know, to really foresee. That is the ultimate record, I think, is if they can eclipse 100 points. Like I said, getting more than uh, 32 wins is another one. Is this really a revolution, though? Or is this two teams that have been built up in this era, Manchester City and Liverpool? Because although they play differently, they also play the same that kind of defines this this time in football. High octane, high press, you know, always pedal to the metal. That's something that both of those teams share. So I don't know if Liverpool's really revolutionizing anything. Are they going to set new records? Are they going to make the game better? I think both of those, the answer is yes. Uh, I don't know if it's really changing the game that much as opposed to kind of continuing the era that we're in now. So if you look at the game itself, I think you could argue the first 15 minutes, Liverpool weren't quite at their usual. I think they were a little bit off the boil. Maybe it was the occasion. There were just a few misplaced passes and they were just sort of stuttering through that first segment of the game. However, it only took a goal to then settle those nerves. And once in front, they never really looked back, did they? No, absolutely not. And there's no reason to. Because that's the thing, especially with Liverpool's defence right now, the minute they go ahead, they do not relinquish the lead. And that's exactly what you saw. But I mean... This was probably part of the game plan for both sides. Liverpool was going to go out, score early, as they did. And then Manchester United were going to sit back more, try and hit on the counter. That's when they're best anyways. So I think that was part of the game plan. But you saw how good Liverpool was. And especially without the front three really firing on all cylinders, like you mentioned, the midfield really stepped up in this game and dominated in a lot of ways. So I think that is another credit to how good Liverpool were. The first 15 minutes of the first half, and then even the first 15 minutes of the second half, they came out on fire. They came out so well, so fast, so strong, you would have thought Liverpool was losing 1-0, not that they were ahead. That's how much desire they have. That's how hungry this team is. That's how good they are. And that's why they're going to win the Premier League without anyone even close to them. So Manchester United, they offered very little in the first half, it must be said, and really lucky not to be too down by the interval. So you could argue, well, actually, there's no real argument, the offside decision was correct, you know, good use of official and technology there. However, that Firmino goal, why was that cancelled out when you consider that a similar challenge on De Gea earlier in the season, arguably even worse, led to that goal being chalked off? Okay, and so just to be clear, you're talking about when Van Dijk was called for fouling De Gea when he was going for the header, right? Okay. So just to catch people up, just in case, when I saw it live, it looked like a foul to me. It looked like in midair, Van Dyke got to De Gea and ran into him, bumped him before De Gea got a hand on the ball. And so for me, that is a foul. And of course, because of that, 
the ball uh, fell to Firmino. He ended up scoring, and that was what was chopped off. I did think that was a foul. I thought there was enough contact. And especially watching it back on replay, to me, it only solidified what I thought I saw. And so I completely agreed with the decision to chop off the goal. It sounds like, though, Dan, you do not. Well, I just don't... I don't really see where the actual sort of infringement or the challenge was. He wasn't really sort of... I mean, his eyes were always on the ball. He wasn't really... I know he sort of backed in, but it wasn't really like an aerial challenge of elbows. Like I say, the Everton one seemed much worse. That was more of a sort of a face... Sorry, an arm across the Hayes' face. And I just feel that... Where's the consistency? Like, why is one referee... Considering it was actually the referee in the VAR tower gave the decision against... Manchester United at uh, Old Trafford and then gave it on the pitch. So he obviously feels with himself that that's fine. But then someone else in the VAR Tower at Anfield said no. So it's just, again, down to consistency, really. But, you know, it didn't really change the outcome of the game all that much, if at all, really. So it, had it done, had United got a draw, then maybe there would have been much more of a, a saga about this. And the reason United didn't get a draw is, A, because such of a lack of attacking options and chances. And when they had chances, they failed to take them because in the second half... They had one real guilt-edge one, didn't they? Anthony Martial, just when you need a bit of composure, he decided to lash through it, and what a wrong decision that was. What was so surprising was Martial has been one of their key guys this year. He has played up front when fit very well, and so to see him miss as badly as he did kind of shocked me. That was one chance, and then there was another where I believe it was Pereira was on the back post and missed a golden opportunity oh, yes. yeah, yeah, as good well. Uh, I believe that, uh, it came from Fred, a pass from him. And so, yeah, there was more than one occasion that Manchester United missed opportunities. But you know what? That is the type of team that they are. They're a pretty average side. They have had good runs of form this season. And again, when Martial has been fit, he's played well. But you can't really rely on Manchester United. There's been too many times where they have let you down. Even earlier this year when they took points off Liverpool, that was a good performance, but that was definitely a one-off. I don't think you can look at any good performance United has said and then thought to yourself, you know what, next match they will definitely replicate that. And that's what came out in this match. You saw they couldn't finish like so many other times, that they are a bang average team. They didn't have many chances. The ones they did have, they missed wildly and that's something they're going to continue to do regardless of who they're playing whether it's a mediocre side or it's a top tier side like Liverpool well you say United are bang average and I think you're absolutely right in that sense and that's not helped with the fact that Marcus Rashford is now going to be out for two months so obviously they progressed in the FA Cup however the decision to play him has backfired massively hasn't it yeah absolutely and I can understand Solskjaer's predicament He is a bit derided by fans, and what's one way to get them off your back is winning a cup. They're very close. They're in the semifinals, although behind on aggregate, in the League Cup to Manchester City. In the FA Cup, if they can advance, I think it would build him or buy him a little bit of goodwill. So I can understand why he wants to go for silverware, but unfortunately, it has now left them very thin up front, especially because... After Martial and Rashford, that's it. Mason Greenwood, can you really rely on him to be the number nine or to play a significant super sub role? I don't think so, not at this point. So it backfired on them. Unfortunately, you make decisions, and sometimes they don't go in your favor. But now it's how are they going to 
react to this? What is Solskjaer going to do? Is Manchester United going to buy in January someone on loan just for the rest of the season? Or are they going to try and get someone now and possibly overpay but get a head start on another rebuild, whether that's going to be under Solskjaer or if they're even planning for life after him come next season? Um, I think that's the important question for Manchester United right now. Well, that was going to be my uh, next question, actually, because I think United are in a scenario where they're going to look at this and think, OK, Tottenham, their season has been massively derailed by the lack of a, a talisman, for use of a better term. So do they sort of follow that example and think, OK, we'll muddle through? Or do they think, well, if one of our perceived rivals is stuttering, let's take advantage of that and roll the dice over the checkbook and try and ignite their season? So which way do you think they will go? If they have any desire to finish in the top four... They have to open the checkbook because they're not going to finish in a Champions League spot with this squad. And most likely, they're not going to win the Europa League with Rashford out for a long time and Martial maybe being able to stay fit. So if they want to get into the Champions League, they have to buy this month. And I think they're going to do that. It's just a matter of who they're going to get. I know Edinson Cavani has been rumored with Man United as well as a host of other Premier League teams. And so I think he would be a good short-term option, whether that is for six months loan and then he's free to leave, or if it's going to be for 18 months and he can try and help as Rashford still develops, as Greenwood still develops, um, and uh, Martial hopefully can stay fit. But is Cavani going to want to be you know, second fiddle, maybe even third? Probably not. So it's hard to see him buying in long-term. But I do think ultimately Manchester United, they're going to have to buy someone because if they don't, it looks like in action, it looks as though they are complacent, and I don't think the fans will tolerate that. So Manchester United, I think, definitely is going to buy someone up front in uh, the next 10 days. I mean, you could almost say the same about Tottenham verbatim, whether we'll sort of be urged into the transfer market, but does this now create something of a tug of war for Edison Cavani? Let's sort of play fantasy manager for a bit, and let's forget the fact he's the age that he is, and there's no real financial sell-on value, but... If you're in a bit of a hole, he's let's say twenty million. He might be for eighteen months, and he might not be, you know, playing every week. But would you roll the dice yourself if you were the chairman of either of those clubs and think if we need a man, let's just go a bit big because we could go for an Ings or a Pookie or someone like that. But really, if we want to get back into the Champions League and the Europe's elite, we really need to roll the dice here. If I'm Cavani, well, sorry, if I'm either club, Spurs or United, definitely I'm going after him. So we'll rule out that part. If I'm Cavani, I would choose Spurs. They're much closer to winning a Champions League, to winning trophies in England, than Manchester United are. So why would I go to a a club who, yeah, they have a lot of money, and that would be the only reason, is getting a bigger paycheck at United than at Spurs. But other than that, why would I go to a club who, right now, over the past few seasons, is in the Europa League far more often than the Champions League? There's no reason to do that. Why would I go to a club that's been constantly rebuilding for the better part of a decade? Why would I go there? Absolutely, there's no reason. For Cavani, because it's a same situation, similar situation between Spurs and United, I think there's only one choice for him, and that's Spurs. Again, money can draw you another way, which I completely understand. If he's going to get twice the salary at Old Trafford as he will, in North London, then I completely understand. But that's the only reason. If it's purely about football and sporting merit, if I'm Cavani, I go to Spurs, 100%. 
So let's say that Spurs are the front runners in this fantasy bidding war. Will Tottenham realistically actually open their own purse strings? Because we know that Levy's a man who's about value and you know trying to get a sell-on value for a player who'll buy and then sort of shift on a few years down the line. That necessarily won't happen with Cavani. There's too much of a quick turnaround. However, if you're Jose Mourinho and you're knocking on the door and saying, look, our season's in a big danger of falling apart, if not already, do you just think sometimes you just need to forget about the balance sheet and get in the kind of name that will not just paper over the cracks, but also ignite your team, ignite the fan base, and hopefully salvage the season? Well, that would be wonderful, but as you know better than anyone... That is not the way yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> that it works at Spurs. So that's not happening. We can rule that out. Um, I, I think that does sound good in theory. And as Mourinho, of course, you would like that. But I think part of the reason they won't do that, besides Levy not liking to spend money, is I think Mourinho is in his mind there for the long term. And, of course, his version of long term is two years, two plus years. But I don't think he's going to panic by this month and just get someone because I think he knows he wants he, – he can only spend so much. And he has to really pick and choose his battles. And so overspending in January I think is probably going to work against him come this summer when he wants to buy someone that is fitting to his system. If he's going to try and develop through the midfield, if he wants to go and find a defender, he has to be careful about overspending now so that he has enough funds available in the summer. So I don't really see him going crazy and you know uh, spending a wild fee on someone if it's short term and if it's only to replace Kane for six months. I don't really see him making that decision. Okay, let's go to one of Mourinho's former clubs now. It's your beloved Chelsea, and you know I think it's fair to say you have your own woes as of late, but no one else can capitalise on them. So even though you've had a little indifferent period, I think it's ten points from the last eighteen on offer. Defeats Newcastle, something of a shock. You know, you're still sitting relatively pretty in fourth, aren't you? So, you know, you've lost eight this season. A good job so far for Lampard, but still a lot of work still to be done, you'd say. Yeah, this game, I think, summed up the problems with Chelsea in a nutshell. Was in attack, they were devoid of ideas. Never once did the wingers flip, and they just stayed on the exact same side. Not even for five minutes, not for ten minutes, never once. And they were never able to get on the end of crosses. In attack, you see that Chelsea need a veteran presence. They need someone who's a little bit more established, who's a little bit better. Tammy Abraham can definitely be the number nine of the future, but he certainly needs backup and someone who can do the things that Chelsea are lacking in right now. And defensively, that's been their Achilles heel. And at the end of the match, in stoppage time, Isaac Hayden scored on a second chance off a corner, a ball that wasn't cleared well enough. Both of those things have been exactly why Chelsea have struggled at times against the smaller sides. When they go up against the bigger teams, they're okay. They're able to hang in there. But they haven't been able to break teams down that sit back against them. And defensively, set pieces have been a nightmare. And both of those reared their ugly heads once again. Like you said, Chelsea, it hasn't been a terrible season. Other Big six sides have struggled as well, so they're still in the hunt for the top four. But it hasn't been a great season. It's been above average, taking into account the transfer ban and all the young players, the young manager and Frank Lampard. But I definitely think a lot of Chelsea fans would say it could be a lot better than what it has been. And this Newcastle loss is just an example of that. 
Well, let's go to Newcastle then, because they keep continuing to defy the odds, it must be said. And I think even now, some fans are starting to sing Steve Bruce's name. So if he does keep them up, could he be considered a potential manager of the year candidate? Oh, absolutely. I think, myself included, I expected Newcastle to go down without so much as a whimper. I thought for sure they were finishing dead last, relegation, uh, not just threatened, but secured from the first match week of the year. So I've been down on Newcastle all year, and they continue to surprise and impress. And because of that, absolutely, Steve Bruce deserves a shout for manager of the year. His own fans finally started singing his name. I believe it was the FA Cup replay midweek was when, for the first time, they did. That's right. He's been able to turn them around and get them on his side through constant um, matches like this, holding down a big team. Chelsea was one. Spurs was another. Manchester United in there. Those matches, those points that he's won, I think have really endeared him to the fans, and rightfully so. And because of that, to have this team mid-table, pretty comfortable, I think is a huge, huge accomplishment, and absolutely he deserves shouts for manager of the year. Most likely he's not going to win it, but definitely he should be in the running. Because I think you've got to admit, Newcastle's football is far from easy on the eye. They've only scored 22 goals this season, which is the joint lowest in the Premier League thus far. So what has been the secret to their relative success? They've been lucky in that they have been bailed out a lot of times. Uh, Moments like this where they've scored in stoppage time. If you go back just a few weeks ago, I believe it was against Manchester City, when John Joe Shelby had a cracker from outside the box as well. They've had defenders scoring headers on set pieces. So they have one ugly... But sometimes when you're competing with a squad that really has no business competing with the likes of Man City or Liverpool, but when you're able to eke out one goal at a time here through defenders, through midfield, especially when up front, Jolinton has not been good at all this season. It's those moments where you're able to grind out one or two goals. That gives you belief and momentum, and I think they've been able to build off of that. Because a lot of these have... Uh, amounted to not just getting one point, but getting all three points. And I think that's been huge for them because they realize, you know what, guys? We can get this done. It doesn't have to be pretty, but there is a way. And we have the willpower and the fight to do it. And they continue to show that every single week. Okay, so the team they share that rather unwanted goal-scoring record with is Crystal Palace. And you'd have to say, Drew, another profitable trip to the Etihad for Roy Hodgson and his players. I don't understand how Crystal Palace seems to have Manchester City's number. <laughs> of all the teams, of all the teams, you oh, Liverpool makes sense. Oh, maybe another big six club. Great. Crystal Palace of all teams is not the one that I would have thought. You know who they're going to take down every time they play them twice a year is Manchester City. But somehow they continue to do it. And they did get a bit fortunate with the Fernandinho own goal. But you know what? They led for large parts of this match. They had that early goal. Uh, from I believe it was from a set piece when Tosin uh, got the pass and was able to score from inside the box. And so early on, they were able to take advantage of City. And they held them back. They were able to stifle City a way that a lot of teams do when they have possession, but they have absolutely nowhere to go. And then again, fortunately, after surrendering the lead, they do get the own goal from Fernandinho, which gets them a point. But Crystal Palace, somehow, once again, They're able to thwart Manchester City. And Crystal Palace has been, at times, all right this season. But honestly, I think a lot of it came down to luck in this match. They 
getting out of out of the Etihad with another point flatters them, and I really think Crystal Palace are a lot worse than their points total this season. Well, this is what I was going to ask next, actually, because they've drawn four in a row. So that sort of tends to lean to the fact they're not all that special, but. You know, they're sort of very, very comfortably in mid-table. They're not going to threaten for the Europa League. There's no real chance of that. That said, they're not really going to be in a relegation battle either. So how do they ever kick on through that glass ceiling? How do they get closer to the likes of Wolves, Sheffield United? How do they find that extra bit of quality? That That's the crazy thing, because they can't score goals. It, it's not as if their attack in Zaha and IU are, are bailing them out of games. It, it, it really does baffle, you know, the mind that they're able to do this. Defensively, I think they've been as sound as can be because they haven't allowed many goals, especially for a team that doesn't have any real elite or quality defenders and lost their best one, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, to Manchester United. Surprisingly, they've worked as a unit and been able to use that as a solid foundation and then hit hit quickly on the counterattack. And that's been really the only time they've scored goals. They haven't had that many penalties to their name either. So much like Newcastle, for Crystal Palace, it's just being able to eke out three points instead of one point when it comes to any of those close matches. You mentioned Palace and Luck. Perhaps a slice of it on the weekend when Jakob Riedveld's, um well, clearance was one that did hit his arm, but went to VAR, a bit of drama overturned from a penalty decision was that the right decision yes i think so and you know earlier when we talked about var you mentioned the inconsistency and i understand where that's coming from not necessarily just just from this call but i think that's that's the biggest problem right now is any time that it goes to var nobody can look at it and think for sure this is going it's going to go this way or it's going to go that way and so i think that's the biggest problem and that's why Bringing up another one like this is is a news item. Is because there's absolutely no way to determine. There, there's no consistency. There's no. There's not even a, a hint of. Usually the refs are calling it a lot tighter. Everything is a handball. There's not a hint of nothing is a handball. Anything goes. There's no consistency or leaning one way or the other. And that's what makes this call another newsworthy item and something that I think is frustrating to people like myself, especially people like me who don't enjoy VAR. It's just another thing that distracts from from the 90 minutes on the pitch. Last week we mentioned City and their probable objective of just getting the top four as an insurance policy. After the game, Pep Guardiola all but confirmed it. So does this mean they're going to go all kind of Real Madrid where they just sort of start through to the end of the season, save all their energy and then go on and conquer Europe? They're definitely going to have to because honestly, I think if there's any team that's safe in the top four it's Manchester City and I understand that might sound crazy with the amount of losses that they have but they're a talented team enough they're not dropping out of the top four therefore they can focus all their energy on the Champions League and they need to do that as that is what the the board desires that's the reason for all of the investment over the past decade that's the reason for bringing in Pep and giving him the freedom and money to spend as he's as he's done is to win the Champions League so they're going to have to do that. That's the only way they can salvage their season is by lifting that trophy in May at the end of the year. If they don't do that, this season is a failure and arguably Pep's project is a failure as well. 
Right, that brings us to the end of the first half. Don't go anywhere because there's a lot more to chat about on the other side. So we'll be back very, very soon. Your accumulator letting you down again. You've cashed out early. And you just can't win. Prehistoric football coupons? Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? At Loserpool, pick a loser and win a thousand pounds in a last man standing tournament. Be a loser and win at Loserpool. Enter for free now. Visit loserpool.com. Okay, welcome back. Let's hot foot it to the Sunday games now, or one of them, shall we say, because it was Leicester and a shock defeat to Burnley. So even though City drew 24 hours before, they actually pulled clear into second. So we mentioned Burnley last week and how a little bit of crisis could be forming. They lost four in a row. We looked at their upcoming fixtures and thought, oh dear, this isn't very good. What do we know? Because just when they need a result, they find one once again. Yeah, of all the times for Burnley to pull out a result, against a solid team. Leicester was not the time that I thought it was going to happen, especially not after Burnley went behind in the first half and allowed Leicester to take the lead into halftime. That, to me, was the most surprising thing. But second half, Burnley came out. They were resilient. They were a little bit more aggressive, knowing that they have to get points. They can't afford to drop them at home. And while expecting to take points off Leicester... Is not that's not something that Burnley can expect to take points off of them. But now that they have, I think these are three huge bonus points because they are in a relegation fight. They are lower in the table than I think they were hoping for and expecting to be. So this was huge for them. And I think that's why Sean Dyche sent them out second half and said, guys, we have to at least get a point. But three would be ideal to get, again, kind of like bonus points for the season off of Leicester. For Burnley, this is a great result, and this has helped them avert the crisis for now, and hopefully for them, they'll be able to continue this on, because they're definitely going to need it uh, if they want to stay in the Premier League this season. And talking of Leicester, that's now four defeats in the last six league matches, so is there any cause of concern for Brendan Rodgers after this dip? Is it something that's come off the back of such an electric start? Is the tank a little empty at the moment? You know, it definitely looks like that, and and it shouldn't be, because... After they played Man City and Liverpool, he rested and rotated the entire squad, you know, except the keeper. So they should have, you know, had a little bit of rest. I think this is cause for concern, especially because they blew the lead and that they might be slipping into a second half decline. I'm not going to buy into that just yet. Leicester have been too good this season. They have won too many games convincingly. They've won too many close games. They've come back at times. They've won in so many different ways that for me, I'm not going to let a tough run of form, especially one that includes losing respectably to Man City and Liverpool, I'm not going to turn my back on them just yet. I understand the cause for concern, and I think if they were to lose one or two more, especially against mediocre sides like they have West Ham midweek, if they were to lose another game like that to mediocre sides, or another two, then I think the second half decline is really in in full force. But it's not quite there yet, and I'm not turning my back on Leicester. No, and I don't think you should, because when you consider, you know, we spoke about Manchester United and Tottenham and their lack of attacking options. 
that's going to have its own kind of huge collapse required for Leicester not to finish in the top four. So I don't think there's cause of concern just yet. I think it's literally, they're almost, their defeats as of late have been absorbed by such a good run beforehand. They can almost get away with that and still have that relatively safe buffer. So, you know, a win in midweek and it shouldn't be too much of an issue. But, you know, going back to the game, you would have thought by the time Harvey Barnes scored that they would have got that one. Chris Wood then gets an equaliser. You think, well, the game's in the balance. But then Jamie Vardy... 12 yards, you think you're putting your house on this one almost. So how pivotal was Nick Pope's penalty save? That was absolutely huge for Burnley because Jamie Vardy doesn't miss penalties. I believe he's only missed four in his career in the Premier League, and I don't think he's ever missed more than one in a season. So that's a rarity in itself. And yes, absolutely, that was huge for Burnley because if Jamie Vardy hits that penalty... I think that absolutely sparks Leicester, and then they go on to win, and they get one more before the end of the match. And I think that really is uh, just a dagger to the heart for Burnley. So that was huge for the keeper to stop that, because without it, they don't get the three points, and arguably don't, they don't even get one point. And again, with how prolific of a penalty taker Jamie Vardy is, to stop him when you need it, when you need three points, when you're trying to save your season, absolutely a huge moment. And Nick Pope deserves a ton of credit. That penalty was a huge miss. And I think it's also fair to say that Wilfred Ndidi has been a huge miss for Leicester as of late. So how sorely felt has his absence been by Brendan Rodgers? And his absence is one of the reasons that I ha- I'm not turning my back on Leicester just yet. He's another reason because while he's been gone, you've seen Leicester have not been as good in the midfield. He is arguably just as good statistically as any of the best defensive midfielders in the league. If you look at Fernandinho, Conte, Wilfred Ndidi has been up there with the best of them. And so without him, that's been a major loss. Now, he is... uh, Brendan Rodgers said he could be fit and ready for West Ham this week. And for Leicester's sake, they're going to need him to help shore up the midfield because he does so many fantastic things both defensively and helping spur an attack but then also they need him to help stop this skid that they're on so this is going to be huge for them if he can get back as soon as possible because he's been a big loss and his absence has been one of the reasons that I think Leicester have dropped points yeah I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment so let's go to the first game of the weekend's Premier League schedule Watford versus Tottenham not a great deal of on-pitch action it must be said but there's a couple of flashpoints Watford, with that draw, now got 14 points out of the last 18. So that great escape continues. It could have been even greater had Troy Deeney scored his own penalty. So not a good weekend for penalty takers. Not the best penalty either, but it must be said that it still requires a good save from Gazaniga all the same. Yeah, I think more this was a bad penalty than a good save because, you know, Mr. Watford, Troy Deeney, didn't put it in a good spot. It wasn't on the ground, nor was it towards upper 90 it it was just a poorly taken penalty and because and yes Gazaniga went the right way which is why he was able to save it but definitely more this comes down to a bad penalty than or badly taken penalty than a well-saved one and for Watford this was absolutely uh, you know a missed opportunity because although Spurs haven't been great this year they're still a big six club and I think anytime they go to Vicarage Road Spurs expect to take points And so for Watford being able to just be in a situation where they could have hit that penalty and then won all three and continued their great escape, 
I think this is a huge missed opportunity, and they're going to be very upset with themselves for not taking advantage of a poor Tottenham side this season and in, in these 90 minutes. And I think they're also going to be upset that they didn't take advantage of the opportunity to get three more points against a team that they normally wouldn't. So this was, uh, for Watford, good in that they still got a point and that continues their momentum. But definitely I think they're going to be kicking themselves that they should have gotten a lot more from this one. And Tottenham will probably be kicking themselves in the last minute or so because we're talking literal millimetres being the difference between Eric Lamella and a winner. So here, somewhat ironically, is this a case where technology is just too good? Because I would imagine... If that's a game in, let's say, Scottish Premiership football where there's no goal line technology or League One, does the referee give that because he, he almost assumes the ball's crossed all the line? Yeah, I, looking at it live, it definitely looked as if it crossed the line. I mean, that that's up to the referee and the linesman. If they can spot it. If to them, if it looks to the naked eye, it went over the line and they and they called it for a goal, then I would completely understand. Where I think this is different in terms of using technology compared to VAR is that with goal line technology, there's only one moving part that matters, which is the ball. The goal line never moves. And so you can definitively tell, yes, it crossed or no, it didn't. Where with offside, let's say, because that's been you know the big problem with VAR, is you have everything moving, the ball, the defender – the the attacking player and multiple parts on them their head their hand their back their their armpit now their feet and, and so that I think is much harder to to decipher and tell when exactly do we have to freeze it and is this the right call where with goal line technology you don't have that problem at all it's much easier and so I think that's the reason people are not going to get upset that you know quote technology is getting the right call for that I think they're completely different issues. And reasons why people either like it and are behind it or are against it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a massive fan of goal line technology because I just love the absolute nature of it. So I've got no real complaints. It's just the sort of getting to how close it was. But I know you're a man steeped in science. So to the naked eye, what do you reckon that millimetre difference was? Let's say that Salah, for comparison, against Man City was 11 millimetres. So you're saying less than five, less than three. And also, when you consider that I believe that Hawkeye's margin of error is three millimetres. So was that on that absolute benchmark, or is this a, a goal, in inverted commas, which is actually did technically go in, but the margin of error has actually flipped it the other way? What do you think? Well, I'm going to defer and say <laughs> that I am not an expert enough. I'll, I'll give my best educated guess. I'll put that caveat in there. Okay. To me, it did look like a goal, absolutely. But the way it was cleared off the line... I'm going to then buy into the freeze frame that we saw that it was cleared off the line in time. But again, live watching it, I did think that it went – it did cross the line fully. But the way it was cleared, I'm going to trust the goal line technology and that I got it right. Yeah, like I say, I mean I can't sort of bemoan goal line technology because it's a great, bit, a great bit of kit. So let's just go with the decision and I think we just have to put it down to the jaw it was. So that was one evident of the relatively ridiculous at the weekend – Another was at Carrow Road because it goes from bad to worse for Bournemouth. However, what a save from Steve Cook. Yes, outfield <laughs> player Steve Cook, a.k.a. a player who is not allowed to use his hands. And, you know, look, I, get, I give him credit understanding or at least me interpreting it as the dire nature that Bournemouth find themselves in. And they realize it, that 
they can't afford to lose matches, and especially not a relegation six-pointer, and not against a team in Norwich who can't score to save their lives and are dead last in the league. And so I think his desperation uh, w- was clearly visible or in the club, not just him, of course, in so, the way that he jumped up in the penalty box only 30 minutes into the match and threw his hand at the ball to try and knock it off from scoring when the keeper was caught out. But I, I do think that's a – with only 30 minutes into the match, I don't think that was necessary. If it was the 89th minute, I'd understand and take your chances on the penalty. But 30 minutes in, I think that was too early and a bad decision. Yeah, it was a decision which I guess lacked any real nows, but also one steeped in desperation, you'd have to say. And it is looking desperate for Bournemouth because that's one point from 18 now. Crisis mode has been activated. Second bottom from the table. If that becomes one from 21 against Brighton in midweek, who themselves aren't good away from home, but they'll be smelling a win here. Does the Bournemouth owner then have to start having a really difficult discussion with Mr. Howe? Yeah, absolutely. Because Bournemouth is not going to want to go down back to the championship especially because they've set the standard for themselves over the past few seasons that not only do they survive, but they survive in the Premier League comfortably. And this is a big regression. Now, look, do I think this is all Eddie Howe's fault? Not really. Do I think if they bring in another manager, do they survive? Maybe from a new manager bounce, but I don't think that a new manager is going to take the same team and have them you know, fighting for the Europa League spots or anything like that. I think this team has overachieved, and they do have some good players, but they have guys who this season are underachieving, especially when you compare that to their previous year's overachievements. And so I think that's kind of the big problem for Eddie Howe, and his job probably is on the line. And like you said, if they lose to another relegation-battling team, be it Brighton midweek, then I think the, the, the board definitely has a tough conversation with him, and I think his job may be on the line. We also saw a first this season at Carrow Road, and that's the fact a monitor was used. So you'd have to say it was the right outcome. You know, using that technology to then see Bed Gonfrey sent off was, you know, no real complaint. However, is the integrity of the Premier League damaged slightly because the monitors haven't been used in the 22 game weeks before? So decisions that could and perhaps should have been overturned have gone missing, and now all of a sudden things that might get given the right decisions. So it's sort of, we're not really on a level playing field anymore, are we? I understand that argument, but I completely disagree with it because if we want a level playing field, well, then let's make all the pitches the exact same size. Let's make everyone play neutral site matches. I mean, if we really want, you know, a quote level playing field. Fair, fair. Um, So that's one reason I don't buy into it. The other one is now, again, I'm against VAR. However, if VAR is making the game better and if the, and if, using it now uh, using pitch side monitors now can make the game better why continue for four or five months knowing it could be better why 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 not take that step and implement it now and make the game as great as possible as early as possible i understand that it may not be quote fair or even and different calls and, and i get that but if it's going to improve the game then let's improve the game from this moment on. Let's not wait until six months later to improve the game. So if that's going to be an improvement and if that's going to make everything better, then I am in favor of that. And I've said before on this show, I do think using the pitch side monitors would be better 
for the referees. It would be better for each individual 90 matches. It would probably be better for fans and for players and for all involved. Even though I'm against VAR, I do think that's a good step. And the Premier League should be doing that every week from here on out. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Now we've sort of seen that use and hopefully we see more and more and then it just becomes, I guess, part of the natural dialogue of the game. So, you know, hopefully this is a, a positive step forward for VAR in what has been a shaky season so far. Talking of a shaky season so far, Norwich, they ended their barren run with a welcome win, but can they extract any real hope from that or did they just get the better of a very bad team themselves? You know, if you're only goal is a penalty against Bournemouth and that's how you win I don't think you can be very excited from that now yes three points are three points and for Norwich it doesn't matter how you get them at this at this stage so sure take them celebrate that but I don't think this should give them any confidence that now they're going to kick on because Bournemouth have been abysmal and again their only goal came from a penalty and a wild one when Steve Cook uh, you know, handled the ball blatantly in the box. So I, I don't know how much positivity you can really take from that. And again, you know, they're up for an hour, 10, 11 men to 10 men, and they can't take advantage of that. And a defender was out. So for Norwich, I don't see many positives in this other than just three points, move on, go again. Okay, we've got about 10 minutes left and there's four matches still to uh, run through. So let's quickly wrap up the rest of the Premier League weekend. Where should we go first? Let's go to the South Coast at Amex because Brighton shared the points with Aston Villa. And I guess for Aston Villa, they certainly sort of brushed aside that City thumping. You know, we sort of said that wasn't necessarily going to define their season and it showed. Now, Cole, a couple of weeks ago, said that Danny Drinkwater could be an influential loan signing. However, the influence might come from another one and that being Pepe Reina. What do you think of his installation to the team? Yeah, Aston Villa, Aston Villa definitely needed a keeper, and Reina came up came up big in his first match, which is going to help them a ton. So that's a big improvement for Aston Villa at the back, uh, something that they desperately needed. And then, of course, for them to to even get a point in this match, Super Jack Grealish once again coming up big for them. Aston Villa need a lot of help, and they still have another ten days to try and bring someone in. You know, drink water, questionable if that's going to work out or not against City. It, it clearly didn't. Pepe Reina looks like he's going to be solid at the back. I think if they get one more impact signing, whether in the midfield or up front, who's going to help score them goals, especially a striker now that Wesley's out, then I think Aston Villa have a puncher's chance because something that has saved them this season has been scoring goals. And if, and if they can kind of restore that now with a striker that they bring in, even if it's short term, then I think they have the slightest of chances of staying up. It's going to be tough, but they're going to have to do a little bit better than they did this weekend. Teams like Brighton, they can't take one point. They're going to have to take all three. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think now's the time they have to uh, dig deep into the transfer market, have one last go at it, and I think if they can get well, a crucially important forward, that might be the difference between, say, 17th and 18th. Southampton, let's go across the south coast now, and their impressive run came to an end. But to 2-0 up, you would have thought this run's going to continue. That's going to be a bitter pill to swallow, but for Wolves, it looks like they've finally awoken from the rut they were in during January. Yeah, for Wolves, I think this was a big, important comeback win because they shouldn't be losing, on the road or not, to teams like Southampton, and to be able to come back against them. And for Raul Jimenez to contribute once again, who's been a key player, he very rarely scores more than one goal in a game, which to me I see as a benefit because he's then affecting 
more games. And that was the case in this one as well. Pedro Neto has also come out of nowhere in recent weeks, and he scored another goal. So for Wolves, this was huge to come back on the road in the second half and uh, end up getting all three points against the Southampton team, whose defense was playing well, Danny Ings, who has been on fire. And to, and to be able to come back and beat them, this was huge for Wolves. Big three points. Yeah, it's a very good point you make about Jimenez, actually, in the sense that not necessarily stat padding with his goals. Like, it's no good scoring the fourth goal in a 4-0 win because then, you know, the game's already won. He wants someone to be decisive across more games. And that was exactly the case at the weekend. So if he can sort of keep just chipping in in multiple matches, then Wolves will be, again, part of that Europa League conversation. Let's go to London now. Two matches that took place in the capital. The first one, West Ham versus Everton. And I think on the basis of both performances, you'd have to say that two relatively new managers to their clubs... Both know they've got a lot of work still to be done. Yeah, absolutely. This game was pretty much even both ways in possession, in all types of stats. And like you said, I think this is both, or this is two managers, both of whom are still kind of feeling out their squads, trying to find the best combination of of mixing and matching players. And so I think a draw is a good result for both. I think Moyes and Ancelotti can both be happy. I think both squads can be happy. Dominic Calvert-Lewin obviously can be happy with scoring another goal. And so I think for for both teams, they're going to look at this and say, you know what, no harm, no foul. We're good with a point. Okay, and finally, we'll go to the Emirates as Arsenal were held by Sheffield United. So you'd have to say mid-table Arsenal, not getting any traction at the moment under Arteta. Could you also use that same sort of still a lot of work needs to be done for a new manager? I guess not excuse, but statement for the Gunners as well. Absolutely. Arteta has a lot of work to do as well because they relinquished the lead. They scored before the half, which was a great sign. And then in the second half, they let off the gas and they ended up surrendering a goal to Sheffield United. So for Arteta and Arsenal, I think they should walk. They should have walked off the pitch with their heads down, disappointed in letting two points get away from them at home against Sheffield United, a team that they should be able to beat. Yes, the Blades have been good, but Arsenal at home should be beating a promoted team. And so I think Arteta once again saw his, his side uh, you know, come down a bit in the second half, and he's going to have to work that out and improve them. And they ha- still have a long way to go before they're battling for a Europa League spot, let alone a Champions League spot. Well, you mentioned the Europa League spot. Can we have a serious conversation about Sheffield United qualifying for Europe now? Because, you know, we're getting into the, the final third of the season within the next sort of month or so. Have they got the legs? Will they valiantly fall at the end? Do they really need Europe or not? How do you see that one panning out for the Blades? I think it would be a great accomplishment for them. Do they need it? No, I don't think so. And next year, that actually could come back to bite them, as it has happened to so many other teams in the Premier League in recent seasons. So they don't need it. But I think for Chris Wilder, for Sheffield to come up from League One, the championship, and now to the Premier League and to qualify for the Europa League, I think would be a huge testament, a a good accomplishment to kind of hang their hat on and say, look what we did. And and as a a season on its own, that I think would kind of be a trophy. And so in that regard, I think they should push for it. And absolutely, it is reasonable to think that they can finish there. They're in seventh right now, and depending on who wins the, the League Cup and the FA Cup, they could get into the qualifying rounds next summer. So it's not a far-fetched idea, and I think they definitely should push with every ounce of their might to qualify for the Europa League. 
I think you're absolutely right. I'll tell you what, if it's a battle for seventh between us and Sheffield United, I'd rather Sheffield United get into the Europa League and give us a, a season out of that sort of Thursday-Sunday cycle. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because I don't even know if we're finishing the top half of this rate. On that also, t- how many other fans would agree with you on that? Well, I, I don't think it's the most outrageous statement, put it that way. I think there is a, a simmering of an idea of, well, if we're not going to be in the Champions League, do you really want to be in the Europa League and be sort of faced with that? Now, there's also the caveat that being in the Europa League gives you the backdoor entry to the Champions League, which you might need because you might have another bad season next season. So it's a risk. It's a really risky one because you can't really sort of just down your cards and say, right, that'll do. We're going to finish ninth because that might be the start of a real negative spiral. You need to sort of keep full momentum going, but it's almost a case of how much momentum do you put in if you can't get to the ultimate prize, that being the Champions League. So, you know, it could be a moot point if Tottenham win the FA Cup because then we are in the Europa League. So, I don't know. It's all—it's almost, I guess, the perfect thing we'd like, which we can't have, is winning the FA Cup but not being in the Europa League because of it, which you can't have. So, it's a poison chalice, whichever way it happens, really. But I think, ultimately, Tottenham fans would take silverware and begrudgingly be in the Europa League next season if that's how it pans out. Do you think that is a sort of fair statement? Yes, absolutely. I think Mourinho has too much pride to not try and get into the Europa League. Because even when he won it with Manchester United, he talked about how important that was of a trophy and how he was the first United manager to win the Europa League. So I think he has too much pride to rather finish eighth uh, and avoid Thursday, Sunday. I think he's definitely going to go for it. Yeah, I think you're right in my heart of hearts. Right then, that is about full time. So Drew, a sterling effort carrying the show on your back this afternoon. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I feel like Alexander Lacazette and <laughs> Carl is Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang right now. And I'm just carrying the load because of his red card suspension and he's not here. But I'm happy to do it. Thank you for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. And uh, Carl, hopefully you'll be back soon. Yeah, cheers, buddy. Carl, if you're listening, obviously you're back in the fold anytime you want to be. Right, so that just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Loser Paul. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.